teaching on spiritual warfare. This thing took off into a whole other animal once I started putting it together. I'd planned on, I started with four, and then I was like, oh, no, I think we can get to six, and here we are three months later. But it's been good and it's been important because the, today's church does not have a concept of spiritual warfare in the sense that the Bible says it. We have a misconstrued belief, uh, a misconstrued application. We have, just like a lot of things in the Bible, today's church, and I'm using that, and I am painting everybody with a very broad brush, but today's church is very weak when it comes down to biblical principles. And when it comes down to spiritual warfare, we think often of an intercessory type thing that when we're doing warfare, we're solely doing it on behalf of somebody else. We're doing warfare for a city. We're doing warfare for an individual. And both of those can be true. But the overarching principle of spiritual warfare is more on an individual basis, and it has to do with us. And we're going to see some of that today, and, and our next series is going to tie very nicely into this. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've read this every week, and the last two weeks we begin to break this down, and we're going to break this down one last portion of this today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing in every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We're going to on chapter or verses 4 and 5 today. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've begun to talk about the weapons of our enemy. And one of the things that we pointed out last week was the concept in Ephesians 6, when we talk about the armor of God, that we might be able to stand, withstand the wiles of the enemy, right? What is that? That is the methods, the concepts, the things that he does, his plan of attack. And too often we, we equate wiles as in some sort of weapon that he uses against us. But the truth is, is that he really has no weapons that he can use against us. The word wiles means methods. It means tactics. It means the, uh, the plan, so to speak. How does he come against us? And we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We talked about carnality. What is that? Last week we talked about how we think carnal, we think carnal weapons, we think of things that we can see, touch, and feel. We think of guns, we maybe think of knives, we think of bombs, those are carnal weapons. But it's not just carnal in the sense that I can see, touch, and feel it, but it's carnal in our approach to it. Okay, So it's carnal in how we apply the principles of spiritual warfare against the enemy. And we did all sorts of things, if you recall. We talked about all sorts of different stuff. Uh, stuff that's really, I don't see it as much today. There is still some of it that goes on. But where you really saw it was back in the late 80s and the early to middle part of the 90s where these practices were coming in. And these people aren't bad people. or they're not, they're not necessarily wrong in their approaches except for the fact that they're just overly enthusiastic. And we're taking a carnal approach to a spiritual principle. And so, if our weapons aren't carnal, but they're mighty in God for doing what? And that's what we're going to look at today. They're good for pulling down strongholds, they're casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we're going to break this down today. When we look at pulling down strongholds, what is a stronghold? 
In the natural sense of a stronghold would be what we would consider, what you see overseas, you don't really see it in America, but you would see it as, as like castles would be a stronghold. Um, these big buildings, these giant walls, all of these things meant to keep things out, to protect what's inside in there so nothing else can get in. It can do it no harm. And you see that all throughout the Bible. In fact, if you study out the Greek in this word, it, a lot of it does kind of point back to the kingdom principles, not kingdoms like kingdom of God, but the kingdoms that were there. They all had these fortified cities, the things wide, to protect themselves, to keep their enemies at bay. They couldn't just walk in and, and just knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to blow you up. They had to work at it. You see with the walls of Jericho, that God supernaturally intervened and the walls came crumbling down. If you ever watched Veggie Tales, they got a really great song that goes along with that. And that's how you can remember it. We're adults here, right? Okay. But, but the point is, is that those are these strongholds that it mentions, or that's the way it's referenced. But obviously, because our weapons are not carnal, it cannot be referencing a physical structure. So we've got to look at this. Is what is this talking about? Our weapons are not carnal, so we have to think of something that's outside of carnality. But it's strongholds in the sense that there are thoughts against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the key in that. And look at how this approaches. What is the knowledge of God? And we'll get into that in a minute. But the knowledge of God is an understanding of who God is, right? Of what He does. So if our weapons aren't carnal, but they're mighty in God for doing what? Pulling down strongholds. Maybe pulling down the thoughts in our mind, right? Our weapons are, maybe we can say it like this. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds against the knowledge of God. You see, we can take those two parts out. Why? Because it's just common. It's just adding to it. So for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds against the knowledge of God. We look at that and we say, okay, so we got a stronghold concept. What about the casting down arguments part? This is kind of somewhat self-explanatory. The Greek word here for castings means to tear down, to destroy, to vanquish, to condemn, to demolish. Our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God for casting down arguments against the knowledge of God. We are to tear down, we are to destroy all arguments against the knowledge of God. And we'll come down, to, we'll get to the knowledge of God part in a minute. But what is this really referring to? This is dealing with the concept of apologetics. Apologetics is nothing more than a big fancy word it comes from the Greek word apologia, which is just that we are prepared to give a defense for our faith. And sometimes we're giving a defense to somebody else, but you know where else we have to give a defense? To ourselves. Because sometimes it's not just a faith in that there is a God, but it's a faith in, well, God said this, but can that possibly be true? I mean, you think about it, we are all the time. We argue with God in the sense that, okay, He says that by His stripes I am healed. But does that mean in everything? Or does that just mean some things? And we in this culture are so quick to just give up on the promise of God and just turn to the promises of man. Take this pill, you'll be okay. I'm not saying that we don't take medicine. We do. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, is we have lost the concept of that faith in God is the key to everything that we do. So when it comes down to apologetics, let's look at Colossians chapter 2 and flip over there because i got some stuff in there I want you to see. If you got your Bible, Colossians 2, and we're starting in verse 1. It says, For I want you to know 
what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, this is Paul talking, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's saying to them that some have seen me, some haven't, some all they have is my letters, but I want you to come together, knit together with this understanding, this mystery of the knowledge of God, and also the Son, the things that are going on, because it, it wasn't obvious to them. Verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted up and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, this is Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all, the, all principality and power. Now watch carefully what this is saying. In verse 4, he's paying close attention to what I'm about to say. So you aren't deceived by persuasive words. This is what Paul is saying. You, here, here it goes. The first part was kind of introductory. Saying, I, I, I feel for those that haven't seen me live but they can read my stuff, but we're all coming together, we're all knit together. Now pay attention to what I'm about to say. And in verse 6, he says something very powerful. Walk in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So you've received Him as your Lord, now it's time to walk in Him, right? It's not just you received Him as your Lord, keep doing whatever you want, it's all okay. No, we walk in Christ and the principles that He laid, laid out. And then we're rooted and we're built up in Him. Right? We're rooted. Everything is based in His truth, His understanding, His knowledge, His person. And they are built up in Him. So everything is revolving around Christ. Okay? Established in the faith. It's making a distinction that there is one true faith. As you were taught to be. This is crucial because these people were taught according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ, right? In verse 6, it talks about rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, or excuse me, verse 7, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. These people have been taught the things of God. They've been taught the things of Christ, and so now it's time to live it out and be incredible, incredibly thankful for it. Be incredibly thankful in it, that they are now separated from the rest of the world. They are now Christ. Verse 8, and this is where the warning comes. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So what this is telling us, don't be caught up through this philosophical concepts. And don't be caught up through the traditions that men have put out there. Only be caught up in the things that are according to Christ. Now some people have taken this and said, okay, well, so we've got to ignore philosophy altogether. And anything that's traditional, we got to throw it out. We can't have that. But that is not what this is saying. You have to apply this to it. So it says, beware lest anyone cheat you through what? Philosophy that is not according to Christ. Beware lest anyone cheat you through the traditions of men 
that are not according to Christ. You see, we get hung up on all of this stuff. We get hung up on these principles. What he's saying here is that philosophy is very much a big part of the world we live in. Philosophy are the ideas, the concept, the thoughts. Your worldview is very much based in philosophy. Science cannot be done without philosophy. You know why? Because science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Right? When they dig up a dinosaur, what, do they, what does that information tell them? Nothing. It doesn't have a toe tag on it that says when it died. It didn't say how old it was. It didn't say when it was born. It doesn't tell them anything. So they take the evidence and apply a concept to it. That is philosophy. We cannot reason without philosophy. We need it. We come to faith a lot through philosophy because the concept of God are contrary to the concept of this world. Everything that we are taught is, is in complete um, disarray when it comes to the things of God. And this is what he is saying, that everything should be according to Christ. You made him your Lord, now it's time to walk in him. And don't get caught up in all of this nonsense, because if it's not in Christ, it is wrong. You see, so we're casting down these arguments. We're prepared to deal with it. But where are we doing this? We're doing this in our mind, right? It's not saying to go out there and cast them down with other people. It's, we're doing it to ourselves, and then back to, to verse 4 in 2 Corinthians 10, it talks about every high thing. The Greek here gives the idea of an exalted object. Something that we put up on a pedestal. Something that we put up there that is greater than everything else. So we can say it like this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. But what are the things that we exalt above God? Now think about this for a second. There's really one thing that we exalt above God. Because if we can get rid of this, then we would never exalt anything else above God. The number one thing that we exalt above God is ourselves. Why did Jesus say that I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Because we love ourselves. We take care of our needs very few people in this world faced with starvation would sacrifice a meal given to them because somebody else over here is in the same boat starving. What do we do? We take what we need first. And if there's leftovers, then we'll give some. But only then. Not everybody. But we exalt ourselves against the knowledge of God. You see it in the world we live today. Right? They exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Romans 12.3 says this, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What is he saying? How high should we think of ourselves? We should think of Christ as up here. But everybody else is on the same level. And this is where we get into a lot of trouble. You see, this is where we get into a lot of problems in, this, in the things of the church. Because we have a church structure that while it's not necessarily biblical, that also doesn't necessarily make it wrong. The, the, church, well, the problem is we think of church, you're like, where do you go to church? Well, we are the church. But we come together, we are the assembly of believers that have one common faith, and that is belief in Jesus Christ. And we share a doctrinal statement, so to speak, and, and we worship God together. And so that is what we think of church. But the problem is, is that sometimes... 
we put expectations on other people that we don't necessarily put on ourselves. And I'll give you an example. This is completely hypothetical, okay? This is not a true story. I want to make that clear right now. But hypothetically speaking, if you're a believer in God and you follow Christ and all that, and all of a sudden somebody that's your Christian brother or Christian sister or whatever the case is in a situation and they lose it, and they're cussing out the greeter at Walmart because he didn't say hello, right, or something, right? We've applied a basis of expecting, I can't believe they did this. How dare they do that, right? And, of course, we're, we, we should not be proud of this thing, but yet we don't apply that same principle to ourselves because while they may have an issue with, let's just say, anger or whatever the case may be, we likely have an issue of something else that we're not dealing with. And we really should remove that plank before we go and deal with that speck. That's what Matthew 7 is dealing with. But a lot of times, because they did this, or maybe they said something to me that hurt my feelings and I didn't like, or, or whatever the case may be, that, well, I'm not going to go to that church, or I'm not going to go to that service, or I'm not going to do this because I know how they are out there, and it's not the same, and it just irritates me. I had a conversation with somebody not long ago. Now, this person is not a follower of Christ, but his wife goes to church. And... He made the statement, he's like, man, I, I don't plan on quitting drinking. I don't plan, I, I swear all the time. He's like, I don't want to be one of those guys that sit in church, you know, on Sunday and then, and then do stuff the rest of the week because that would just make me a hypocrite. And I had to point out to him, I said, you're already a hypocrite. You know, we could show you all the ways, but you're already there. But, but, but because of that, it's keeping him from going to church. And most of us in here say, well, that's not right. You still need to go. I mean, right? we're all hypocrites. There's plenty of hypocrites in the church. There's hypocrites and throughout the world. There's, there's professional hypocrites, right? This is what they do for a living, it seems like. But yet, we as believers will, will let somebody's behavior that is a fellow brother, a fellow sister in the Lord, keep us from doing something because of the way they act or the way they talk. Because we know them out there. And you know what that makes us? A hypocrite. We apply a double standard. Now, we would get on to the, the unbeliever that the only reason they're not going, going to church to where maybe they would have an encounter with God is because there's hypocrites there. And, of course, we would tell them that's wrong, but yet we do the same thing. We don't apply the standard against ourselves. We separate it. And we can't do that because we have to know that we have all these high things in our lives that is exalting itself against the knowledge of God and keeping us from walking in fellowship with one another. The enemy would love nothing more to get the church divided against itself. And guess what? The church is divided against itself. You see it all over the world. You see it in small congregations and you see it in large congregations. Every day I hear about a new church split that's going on. And it's a shame because most of the time it is a wrong church split. They don't like something that either the pastor did or the leadership made a decision and therefore they split. That's not necessarily a good reason to go. What's really wrong is because you painted the walls and now you're leaving the church. That's crazy. But there are times when it is okay. Because when I was living in Oklahoma, there's a guy named Bishop Carlton Pearson. And back in the 90s and the early 2000s, this guy was huge. I mean, you could, everybody in the Christian world knew who this guy was. Very few of you probably even recognize his name anymore, but he was down there in Tulsa. His church wasn't too far from where we lived. And while we were down there, he came out, all of a sudden changed his whole view on everything, and he went from the doctrine of that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ to the doctrine of universalism. Universalism is saying this, is that Jesus died for all, therefore whether we ever repent or not, we're all saved. 
we're all going to heaven. So it doesn't matter that if you're a thief, if you're a liar, if you're a homosexual, if, you're, if you live your life in, in, in uh, infidelity, doesn't matter any of that kind of stuff. God's grace covers everybody, therefore you're in. Of course, the church split. That would be a solid time to split. The sad part is, is not only did the church split, but the church died. That building, when I was down there in March, is now a preschool. But it once was a powerful church that was reaching people, reaching people that were hurting, reaching people with the gospel, and now it's nothing. What happened? A high thing exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and they didn't take it captive. So let's look at these three things again. Our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that are against the knowledge of God. Our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for casting down arguments that are against the knowledge of God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So what are the strongholds, the arguments, and the high things? What are those things exalting themselves against? It's the knowledge of God, right? When you break this down, this is where you catch it. Too many times we read way too quickly and we overlook this part. That all three of these things are going against the knowledge of God. So here's the question. What is the knowledge of God? Turn over to Romans chapter 11. I got some stuff I actually want you to underline here. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgment and His ways past finding out. For whom has the mind of the Lord, and who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? And here we come to the knowledge of God. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Verse 36. For of him, through him, and to him are all things. The knowledge of God is not the mind of God, so to speak. Like, how much does God know? The knowledge of God is those things that are of Him, that are through Him, and that are to Him. And according to this verse, it's all things. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now look at that. They All things are of God. And they've reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. You saw that just before. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The knowledge of God, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to God through God and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What's he saying? The knowledge of God is the salvation of God. You see, all of these thoughts prior to this are coming against the concept of this is who God is. And all things are of Him, through Him, and to Him. Everything that was made, that was made was for God. In John 1, 1, or, yeah, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and all things were made from God, right? 
That's basically what it's saying. What's it saying? That Jesus is the Word. It expands upon that. And He was there prior to the creation. He's not a created being. He is the Creator. And all things are of Him, through Him, and to Him. Why did God create us? He had to have a way to express His love to mankind. Jesus said, uh, no greater love is this than one who will lay His life down for His friends. Did God do that? Of course He did. And he knew he was going to have to before he created us. It wasn't like he was surprised. Do you know that God's never had a thought? Think about that for a minute. We all have thought. We all have that aha moment. We're like, huh, I get it, right? Sometimes it's, it's complicated stuff. Sometimes it's, it's mathematics and you're like, oh, light turned on. That's never happened to God. God's never had a thought. He's never had you know, a moment where he was caught off guard. Adam and Eve sinned and he wasn't saying like, what happened? Are you kidding me? Why didn't somebody tell me about this? He knew it was going to happen prior to it. The knowledge of God is not the knowledge that God possesses. The knowledge of God is the understanding of who He is. Okay, let's look at verse 19. I'll read verse 18 again. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to, to God. Stop there for a moment. Whose behalf? Christ's behalf. Not our behalf. Be reconciled to God, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, we, we, we hear that verse. We hear verse 21 all, all the time. But what is He talking about? The knowledge of God is to know God. And it's on their behalf, God, Christ, Jesus Christ came to give His life for His behalf that we would come and be reconciled to Him and be accounted righteousness to us. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I want you to ask yourself this. Where is the battle? It is in our mind. This whole passage that we've read every single week for three months is dealing with spiritual warfare. And again, many times we take this application and we apply it in a way that I am doing battle for somebody else or I am waging war on the enemy or whatever the case may be. And the war is not with him, it is up here. It is the idea that things are going to come against the knowledge of God, the understanding of who God is and what he did and why he did it. In a westernized culture, we think that Jesus died on the cross and we're just like, oh, that's so nice, that's so cute. We take out the concept of the bloodbath that it really was. The amount of pain and torture that Jesus actually went through, all so that we can be reconciled to Him. And so these strongholds, these arguments, and these high things all exalt themselves against our understanding of who God is for one purpose. That one, will never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, or two, will never be effective after we do it. 
Why do you think that passage of, uh, uh, a couple of minutes ago that we just read, um, da, 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 Colossians 2 and 8, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as your Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, and have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Why is that there? Because if he can't stop you from getting saved, which is what he said, once you've given your life to Christ, you've made him your Lord, now it's time to do this, is at least he'll make you ineffective. Because once we've given our lives to Christ, we are saved, we are born again, we are spending eternity with God. But if we're ineffective and we don't have the knowledge of God, then we are ineffective in a culture that demands truth, but denies its existence. How crazy is that? We have a culture that demands truth, but denies its existence. What do I mean by that? They apply principles of truth, but deny the fact that truth exists. They say, well, maybe that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Is that possible? No, it's not. It can't be. It's a self-defeating statement. They do this all the time. All of these things are coming against the knowledge of God. So now, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Now, I've read this to you before, and we did our worldview series I read this one a lot, but we're going to break this down a little bit differently today. You see, we're in a culture war right now of what is right and what is wrong. No different than it's ever been anywhere else. The difference here in this country has made this country unique. A lot of people said this country has been blessed because it, it supports Israel. There is an element of truth to that. But it's not just that in and of itself. This country has been blessed because it was founded on the principles that God laid out. And if you do things God's way, you can't help but be blessed for it. I mean, the financial issues that we have in this country are self-imposed. I mean, the things that are going on, the, the morality issue that we're dealing with is completely because we have gone contrary to the things that are natural and that God created. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm going to read this kind of slow, but we're going to read a lot of it. We're going to read clear through verse 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now, stop there for a minute. Think back, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse, verse 1 and 4. We read that earlier. Is that what we're talking about? Well, first of all, I'll finish that. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. But again, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. We've got to understand, we've got to have the knowledge of God, that He exists, that He is real. And the things that He says is true. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall be or shall live by faith. What is the it that it is referring to? The gospel of Christ. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21. Because although they, and who is they? Those that are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Got to read this contextually. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now stop there for a second. When we look at this, this just chunk of it, this just says that God said there is no such thing as an atheist, right? Because in order to imply 
a truth that God does not exist, that means you must have all knowledge of everything. And if I gave man the benefit of the doubt that if all the knowledge that's available in the world and all the understanding and all the wisdom of this age, that's all that's out there, what percent would you have? Being very generous, let's say they had 2%, and I'd say that's incredibly generous, which implies that maybe God exists in the 98% that you don't have knowledge of. Let's go on. Verse 22. Professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, let's stop there for a second. Verse 22 and verse 23. First of all, professing to be wise, they became fools for all the reasons that they said before, but they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Many people have applied this and said, well, they're creating idols. This is referring to a time where people were creating idols. And, of course, that is true because it also talks about uh, the birds and the four-footed animals and creeping things that they made. No question about it. But how many idols were made to look like man? When you study out the history of it, very, very few. They made them to look like um, calves, you remember Aaron, and he made the golden calf and all of this kind of stuff. So look at this. Look how it's written. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. What is this talking about? Our culture today has created a God in their own mind and have professed him to be the one that has made all things. Who is that God? Themselves. They worship at the foot of of themselves. If it feels good, do it. If I want it, then I can do it, and you can't tell me. You cannot apply a principle that I do not accept to me. If I, if I say it's not true, then it's not true, and I don't care what you say, right? They've made an image of God into themselves. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, what is God talking about? What is the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts? He goes on. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. Now, I've heard somebody, this is obviously talking about homosexuality, right? There's no way to deny this. But I actually heard somebody give me this argument once. Well, you see, it doesn't specifically say that women were, were giving up men and just going to themselves. But it does say that men were, so maybe, maybe lesbianism is okay. The problem is, is the word likewise, right? For this reason, God gave them up vile passions for their women, exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise... I mean, also, the men were, and it goes and explains how they do it. So he's putting these two, these two things symbiotic to one another, saying they're doing the exact same thing. In verse 28, and, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, stop. They didn't like to retain God. That means that they have a knowledge of God. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then it gives us a list of things that are not fitting that comes from a debased mind. Okay? 
being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who who practice them. Now let's, let's look at this. He gave this huge long list. And the problem is, is that we are to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ, right? The understanding of Christ. But I bet you if we look through this list, we'd find a bunch of things in there that we're doing that come from a debased mind. The knowledge of God is the understanding of who God is, what He says, that He is real, He exists. The battle is where? It's in our mind. It's the battle that goes on. When we do spiritual warfare, we're doing it more times than not for ourselves. We're fighting against the enemy for ourselves. We're fighting against those thoughts, and we take every thought captive. Now, think about it like this. Now, because this, the application of spiritual warfare has become something that it was really never intended to be, that we're doing war for other people, and that we can go out and do war over cities and things like that. And there is some element of truth of intercession and stuff that I'm not going to go into today, but primarily is that if I took the principles that God said that I take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ, and I, I tear down these strongholds and all these things that go against the knowledge of God. And that you guys did it. And every individual who professes to be a Christ follower, who really is the church, it has made up the church. If we all actually did the things that the Bible said, how different would this world be today? How different and much stronger would the church be today? How much stronger would the church be today is that if they didn't just show up to church on Sunday, but they actually applied the principles that God gave them to their life, where we study the Word with all intent to see if those things which said are true. That we put Christ first, that we become a living sacrifice, living in obedience to everything that He says and every principle that He lays out. What if, what if each individual did that for themselves? How much stronger would the church be? What if each individual took the call of Christ to go into all the world and make disciples? What if we each individually did that and we got intentional about reaching the lost and reaching them with the truth and the knowledge of God that we're prepared to cast down those strongholds and every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And you know why we can do that? Because we had to do it in our own lives. We had to apply those same principles to us and then we can help other people walk through them, which is the exact thing that making disciples is. Disciples are never born. They are always made. It never says just walk around and disciples just happen on accident. They are created, they are made, they are individuals led to the truth by people who have been walking with the Lord for a very long time. I'll say this, age is not, does not dictate whether somebody is spiritually mature. And I don't have time to lay out all this foundation for this, but I'll tell you this. When you study it out, a lot of times we go to church and we say, oh man, you know, we got into the meat of the word today and things like that. I'll tell you this, and I can explain this to you another time, is that when it talks about the things that are meat, in other words, you should be on meat, but your spiritual babes requiring milk, that's what Paul said, is not the, the, the word itself that we read it, we know it, we understand it. It's always applied that we are doing it. We're doing the things that the Word says. We become not hearers of the Word only, but we are doers of the Word. What does a doer of the Word look like? One who practices the principles that they preach. Right? So I've seen believers that are still in this same chaotic place that they were 15 years ago when they gave their life to Christ. 
And they have an understanding of what the Word said, but they never take the principles and actually do what it says, that we are the one that takes every thought captive. And if I have a, a thought that comes against the knowledge of God, then I know it's not of God. If I have a thought that, that comes against the things that I know that I should do, then I know that's not of God, and I will take it, and I will do exactly what Jesus did. I will apply those same principles, and I will answer that thought with Scripture. I will answer that statement with Scripture. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we take every thought captive, what are we doing? We are renewing our mind, and that is the order that Paul says that we have to renew our mind to the knowledge and understanding of Christ. That means our mind is not renewed. That means when you give your life to Christ, your brain's not fixed. In fact, it's not even referring to your brain, it's referring to your mind, which would be the equivalent of your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions. And as we get into the next part of this, we have to prepare with battle with the whole armor of God, which is where we're going next, is we're going to get break down the entire armor of God in Ephesians 6. Because there are principles in there that we are completely missing. It says, don't go to war without it. You've got to have this stuff. This is applying to ourselves. Who's our enemy? It's, flesh, it's not flesh and blood. It's against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What purpose do we put on the armor of God to stand against the wiles, those methods, the, 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 the strategy of the enemy? What is the strategy of the enemy when we look at this? It's to get us to be ineffective. One, to get us to never come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And secondly, that once we do, that we become ineffective. And that is why you see such disparity inside the church today. Because there's one way to renew your mind, and that is with the Word of God. That's it. Not the opinion of Chris, not the opinion of you, not the opinion of anybody else, not Facebook memes that send pictures out there with half-truths and whole lies on them that talk about, you know, all of this stuff. I saw one up the other day. It's like, you know, if, if, if um, the, root of, the love of money, no, no, so if money is the root of all evil, then why do churches take collections? You know how many church people I saw put that up? Not church here. Fellow believers, why? We don't know our Bible. Because if we did, we know it says for the love of money. In other words, that that money is your God. Right? We would do that. But we see believers put that up. That's why there's such a, a conflict inside of the church today on the principles of God. Well, God made them this way. No, He didn't. He didn't make us to be sinners. He made us to be saints, to be kings and priests. And the only way we're ever going to walk in that truth is to get an understanding of who He is and cast down every argument, every high thing, and every stronghold in our life that battles with our soul. So why would we do any of this anyway? Why do we go to all this trouble? Why don't we just live and let live? Why don't we just walk on this earth and we know we're saved and all that kind of stuff and that's good. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was his protege. He was pastoring a church that, uh, that Paul put him in charge of. Says, verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So here's the question. Is everything that you say and you have and that you do, is it of Him? Is everything that you say, have, and do through Him? And is everything that you say, have, and do to Him? Because if it's not, then we're not doing spiritual warfare the way we're supposed to. 
the principles have been laid out is that we cannot come to church every week hoping to learn something and never applying it to our lives. I know a lot of people that are incredibly smart and can recite their Bibles very, very well, but are ineffective when it comes to making disciples because they've never crucified their flesh and they've never pulled down all those strongholds and all those high things and all those thoughts that, that go against the knowledge of God, that they've never taken the, the, the thoughts captive into the knowledge of Christ. They've never done any of that kind of stuff. And while they have a lot of knowledge, they're ineffective, and that's exactly where the enemy wants them. They're the same people that tend to cause division inside of a church. Have you ever wondered, and I don't know if this place has ever been a part of it, or maybe you somewhere have been a part of it, but, but division inside of the church happens a lot of times because somebody's opinion becomes too elevated. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. And so because of that, they're not able to submit to the authority. Again, I'm never, not saying that there's never a, a proper time to perhaps either leave a church or move on, or sometimes God calls you to another church. You know that? I, again, I'm not saying anything against this kind of stuff. Sometimes God will take you out of one church because another church needs you. Right? I mean, sometimes that's the way it goes. You know, be that as it may, it's, it doesn't matter. But that's the way that God does it. But here's the thing. We've got all of these things that people that are ineffective. I've seen people that have left the church structure and they've gone out on their own. And I've watched them. You know, these are, these are friends of mine. And the longer they stay outside of the body, the assembly of believers, there's a reason we gather together, the more off they get in their theology the more belligerent they become about their beliefs. In fact, now all of a sudden that they know more than everybody else. They more, know more than every pastor and every other believer out there. And they begin to walk down this path to the point that they think too highly of themselves. They're not taking all these thoughts captive, and now they're out there on this island, and they are right where the enemy wants them because now they've become ineffective. This is what he wants to do. This is why the spiritual warfare is not us doing battle with the enemy, it's us doing battle with ourselves, doing the things that God told us to do. And we as believers, if we're ever, ever going to be effective for the things of God, we've got to do the principles that God laid out and the things that he told us to do. So, as you guys leave here today, we're going to pray. And I just want you to think, is, is, is why I'm praying here just for a minute, and we're going, to, we're going to get out of here, but it's just, Holy Spirit, what are the things in my life that I'm missing? What are the things in my life that I'm not doing correctly? Because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought when we're not digging into the Bible to see the things that the Holy Spirit's trying to get us to change. And so I've got a worship song that I want to do real quick, Amy, if you're ready. And let's just stand up and let's just take a minute.